Hello, and welcome to Caught in the Krauss Fire, a podcast hosted by me, Krauss, a Master of Forestry student in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. This podcast uh, talks about natural resources and other environmental topics around Michigan, the U.S., and even the world. I bring in a lot of guest speakers, most of which are from Michigan Technological University's College of Forest Resources and Environmental Science, to talk about things like fire and ecology, job experiences, research topics, and today we'll be talking about maple syrup primarily. So Tara Ball is my one of my professors and my advisor for the forestry program at Tech and is currently a research assistant professor at our college and she is going to talk with us today about some of the things that she does and um, yeah I'll let you introduce yourself Tara. Well, thanks for inviting me on, Kraus. Um, I'm a research assistant professor, like you said, in the college, and I'm primarily a forest health specialist, but I do teach the maple syrup management and culture class that um, fills up to capacity every year, and any other normal year, we would just be finishing up and probably pulling taps this time of the season, but um, things had to be adjusted a little bit given the conditions of the spring. So um, as the instructor for that course, I, uh, it's not directly related to forest health, but I get to, of course, throw a whole bunch of insects and things like that in there. Uh, let's like talk a little bit about you for a bit. Um, I see that you grew up in Indiana in like a farming kind of community. Um, do you want to just talk about like how you kind of got to where you are today? Sure. Um, yeah, like I like you said, I, I grew up in a small town in northern Indiana, and um, on being on a farm, I knew that I was going to go into something what I thought originally was going to be agriculture, and so I went to Purdue, but as an undeclared major for almost two years because I was like okay, farming, agriculture, what within that realm, you could do a whole bunch of different things. Um, but I had randomly taken a class um, that was dendrology, which I did not know what dendrology was before I took that class. But once I was like, you can take a whole entire class about trees. Oh my God, I'm going to take every class I can about trees. Um, that was kind of the, the kickoff after that point. And um, that led me down to forestry and I really, really like forest ecology and forest entomology and anything to do with wildlife and forestry and botany and the whole ecosystems and how they work together. Um, I took a couple of jobs in between, but I really liked learning more and more and that's what kind of pursued me to stay in academia and why I ended up doing uh, my other degrees. Awesome. Um, so now you are doing research and teaching like forest health um, about like insects and fungi and all that fun stuff. Um, what classes do you typically teach? Yeah, so forest health is, like you said, traditionally like the insects and the diseases that affect trees. So basically being a tree doctor, someone who goes out and either figures out what an issue is, like diagnosing a tree that's sick or dying, um, just like a regular doctor would do for a person, or um, helping 
design a management prescription for the trees or an entire forest to try to like help a forest be um, get healthier after an issue like that comes through. But forest health it can be a lot of other things related to climate change or soil nutrients or maybe the water going through a system and how that impacts the health of the trees or forested stand. Um, so forest health is many, many different things that um, go into the healthiness of that ecosystem. But other classes that I regularly teach in the college include insect ecology, directly related to forest health being entomology. And then I um, also currently teach the undergraduate and graduate professionalism classes. So like as the advisor for the Master of Forestry program that you're in, um, we meet with other professional foresters and practice networking um, with professionals as we're going to go about and um, figure out what our careers are. And I sort of do a um, equivalent to that for the undergraduate students. Then the maple syrup class came in because a number of years ago, um, one of the school foresters when we were a school at that time um, was leaving the university and he had um, incorporated uh, tapping the trees down in Alberta, Michigan, where the Ford Center and Forest is as part of one of his forest management courses. That, so a number of students would just kind of make maple syrup as a side activity um, in the springtime. And when he left, I asked, well, who was going to take over that class for him? And were they going to use any of that equipment? What were they going to do with it? Just out of curiosity to kind of figure out who I was going to buy syrup from the next year. And the answer was, nobody's going to do anything. It's just going into storage. And because a lot of my research is on maple trees, and that's what got me into one of the things of forest health that I do work on specifically with sugar maple health, I was kind of shocked that this stuff, this program, this like opportunity was just kind of going to fall apart and nobody was taking it up or there were no bigger plans to continue doing that. And so I took it upon myself to write up like a little course proposal and um, got approved to, to design a course and, and start expanding and um, making that into its own standalone program. Did you ever take classes about like maple syrup stuff or did you kind of just like create it on your own completely? Yeah, so I had never taken a class myself on making maple syrup, but I had made it in my own backyard just by tapping a couple of trees. And I have pretty fond memories as a kid going around with our neighbors and um, being from Northern Indiana, it's mostly fields, there's not a whole lot of woodlots or, or trees around, but um, I can remember like driving in a horse-drawn wagon with some Amish neighbors while they're collecting sap and hand drilling trees with like a, a hand drill not an electronic one and having horses haul things around and so that kind of romanticized view of maple syrup was stuck in my head for a long time but just making it in our own kitchen I knew the basics of things um, so understanding the mechanics was not the hard part of developing that class or anything um, I, could, I felt confident enough in putting that together and, you know, talking about like the impacts on the trees, because that's my specialty is the health of the trees. But um, the human side was where I reached out really and had a couple other collaborators and partners help me 
write in um, about the cultural part of it. Yeah, I'm super interested in talking about that side of things for sure, um, because it definitely, I, I read in your like class description kind of thing that you talk a lot about the history of indigenous people um, and you like really um, make sure that students understand like the whole entire culture behind it. Yeah, and that was one of the things like I knew kind of going in, I was like, well, I want to include like the history of it because it's um, not something that's really well explained in a lot of like references and stuff like that. And just having, um, you know, there are other classes and stuff. I was aware, I knew that it's really ingrated in our own local communities, like local people here for thousands and thousands of years had made maple syrup, right? Or not maple syrup, but made at least maple sugar. Um, and uh, knowing that going in, I, I thought it would be kind of disingenuous to just skip over that part of it and just talk about just the mechanics of how you make it. I really wanted it to be more of this bigger story of how impactful um, maple sugaring is really in North America. And it's kind of one of those things that we don't think about as having this long tradition or we don't think about it as being like super important, but really it is iconically North American. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I really wanted to pull that in, but I also knew that myself not being an indigenous person or really, I mean, other, you know, working as a little kid with some in Amish neighbors, I didn't have a bigger cultural perspective myself. Um, but I had some friends who I hope did. And that's how I um, reached out to Jerry Jandro, who was at the time the forester for the Kimana Bay Indian community. He, I knew him because he was an alumni of our programs. He went to school and was a forester graduate from tech. Um, he worked in the labs with uh, other professors and um, when I reached out to him, I just said, hey, I'm trying to like make this maple syrup class, but it'd be really, really cool to have, you know, some of your perspectives, because he was also at the time um, starting a sugar bush for the tribe. And so uh, he kind of jumped on board. He was excited about it and said, you know, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. And I agreed and said, yeah, we are <laughs> going to do it right and um, have that perspective really be incorporated throughout the whole thing. Yeah, that's really great, like to make sure that all of that is incorporated mm -hmm. for sure. It definitely gets missed a lot of the time. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm really glad to hear that you do that. Um, do you wanna kind of just give like a little background on the history of um, like indigenous people using maple syrup and maple trees to today? Yeah, so um well, it's kind of a misnomer or myth in some like reference material you'll find, or you look at like historical timelines for making maple sugar, and you'll see they a lot of them start at like 1700 or 1649 or something like that. And it's like, when's the start date when you look up history books and it's when Europeans got here. But obviously that's not the case. That is not when the first maple trees were used in this way. And so for thousands of years and hundreds and hundreds of generations, people have been doing that wherever there've been maple trees and um, many different 
um, indigenous tribes and people across North America, if they didn't have maple trees there or they weren't using um, and making their own maple sugar, that was a commodity that was traded all across the entire continent. I mean, it's, there's not too many other things that you can make this like sugary, yummy deliciousness out of that you can use in so many ways, right? Um, so it's for thousands of years, like I said, a tradition that's um, done by many different people and uh, different tribes have their own different ways of doing things, but the kind of the basics are the same as you collect this um, watery sap from the trees in the springtime and you condense that down or boil it down until you're left with sugar. And um, a lot of the indigenous people would make it into sugar, not necessarily syrup. That's just taking it even more water out of it because the sugar is lighter and easier to carry. You don't have to carry around that extra water with it. Um, it's a food product that can last indefinitely too. And so you can transport it all around and it's not going to get moldy or mushy or degrade like meat might or something like that after just um, a couple of weeks. So um, it's a long lasting thing. It's something that's one of the first foods that comes that you have readily available to you in the springtime after a long winter. And so there's so many like community traditions where everybody comes together to make this and partake in it and enjoy it and um it has a lot of really significant um cultural meaning to a lot of people on the continent and so when europeans finally did come they learned from the people who were already here how to make maple sugar and maple syrup it, this was not something that was brought from europe um, of course, though, some of their like metal pots and things, all it did was change the ways things were doing and maybe make it faster, but not necessarily making it different or better. And so that's one of the things that's really missed in sort of the story of um, maple syrup. A lot of people don't realize that it's been done here for generations, not just for the last 200 years. Yeah. Awesome. So like one of the terms that you said was sugar bush. So what is a sugar bush? So a sugar bush is a weird word when you think about it, but it's also kind of one of those old um, folk words, like the it's literally the place where you go and get your sugar from. Um, I used to live on Woodbush Road. That's just where, out in that bush, that's where you went to go get your firewood. Um, kind of thing. Uh, different tribes have lots of different terminology and but they like um, the there are words in Ojibwe that mean sugar bush. It's just the place in the trees where you get sugar. So it'd be like a maple stand. Mm -hmm. Sugar bush could also be um, when you're talking about it's sugar bush season or it's sugar bush time and it's just that means that it's now time to be out working in the sugar bush. Sweet. I've never really, like, I've heard the term, but I've never really, like, put thought into it and what it actually means. So mm -hmm. I figure that some listeners might not have known either. So cool. Uh, what about the process now of collecting, like, the sap and everything? Like, what are some of the tools that you use and, like, what are some of the steps that you have to take? Yeah, so um, like I said, the basics is the same and there's really no right way 
or the best way to do it because you have to work with what you have. There's um, what I tell a lot of people or um, somebody's like, oh, well, I don't have buckets. It's like, well, you can use empty milk cartons to collect sap, you know, and don't feel bad about it because the tree's still giving you this gift and you're still able to, to use it. Um, traditionally, uh, native peoples would have used like birch baskets because birch is easily moldable. Like they would have folded the bark from birch trees to make like collecting um, equipment. Um, they could have used hollowed out logs or other things as a means to boil um, the sap down to sugar and then like flat logs to um, or flat wooden trays to like um, mold the sugar together. Um, but today you can use um, any kind of style of buckets or collecting equipment. There's modern um, operators and they use like even tubing equipment and so they have you might see driving down the road like a whole bunch of blue tubes connecting all the trees about right right at head level through a stand and sometimes that's collected with gravity other times they have a little bit of vacuum pressure to pull that sap so it doesn't sit in the tubes um, but it's just collecting a whole ton of sap and then you have to boil it down and so the um, average kind of equation for that is about 40 gallons of sap makes one gallon of syrup and then even less if you want to make it into sugar so it is a takes a lot of sap to get just a little bit of, of syrup for sugar for your table um but you can um you know traditionally it would have just been um boiled and let that water come out as steam Today we can use um, like flat pans. You can cook it on your kitchen, although you might peel all the wallpaper off of your kitchen in your house if you're steaming that much of it. Um, or we use evaporators, which are just, it's just a term for a big series of pans that the sap flows through and it gets more and more condensed down or higher sugar content as it flows through that. Um, so once you have it boiled, you have to pay attention at the end to the, the temperature and the density of it if, before you pull it off and have it as syrup. If you want to make it to sugar, you just keep boiling it to a higher temperature as more and more water comes off and then eventually you get to a point where you're either going to burn it or you're going to stir it and it's going to crystallize and, and look like brown sugar. Interesting. It's like such a cool process. I um have visited jerry's sugar bush before one time and i remember seeing like the tubes connecting the trees um together and it, it was just so something that i've never been exposed to before i came up here um so it was really cool to learn about that for sure um and i i have him on social media and just like seeing um, the process and like his family go out and like friends come to help work on things because it's a lot of work um, yeah. is really really cool to see so that's the thing about it if you have you know five trees in your backyard you can manage that it's not that hard to carry five buckets once a day and then empty them into something bigger but when you're talking hundreds of trees there's, it's not a one-person job. You have to have a lot of help. And so having community and neighbors or 40 students in a class is, is kind of a necessary part of it. If you're doing it um, by hand and you're not a big operation, like some of 
um, there are some companies, if they have the, the time and money that they hire a couple of full-time people, that they're able to pay for all that tubing and, and set up like thousands and thousands of taps worth of tubing. And then their job is like just daily monitoring and patching holes where those things are going. But you can get it to a point where it's, it's kind of self-sustaining and like it, the tubes flow into tanks that automatically flow into the evaporators and stuff like that. But you can imagine like any big equipment that means that that's a lot of money up front to get that mm -hmm. stage. Yeah. What, so like how much sap can you get from one tree in a day? And like, it, it's only a certain time of year typically. Yes. So I don't know anything so it, about that. Kinda, yeah. And that's, it's kind of funny. I've seen like TV shows where they're like, we're going to go out to make maple syrup or there was some crime scene out here. We got to visit this guy's maple syrup area and, and they're, um, like acting like they're making syrup and boiling it but all the leaves around them are green and there's like huge green leaves and birds singing and it's clearly they filmed it in the middle of the summertime and they're just like pouring syrup out. but you definitely um it's only in the springtime that you're collecting and making uh maple sugar and so you need um warm days after the the trees have kind of gone through their dormancy period in the winter time they start essentially waking up that's not really what's happening but they start waking up and the sap starts flowing when you get warm temperatures above freezing during the day and sap moves up into the um, buds of the crown and it's starting to um, grow the buds and it's like moving hormones and moving water and nutrients in the trees. And then at night when it gets below freezing, the sap flows back down into the roots for storage so that it doesn't freeze within the tree. And so in the springtime, when the trees are starting to do that period of time, um, there's a lot of sap moving in the morning and then in the evening as it's going up and then back down again. And the sap is moving not just right at the bark, but Within a tree, you have the sapwood and the heartwood in the center is kind of how it's um, normally described. And so when you tap a tree, you're tapping um, about an inch and a half within the, the tree and there's that sap is coming out of all those wood cells. It's kind of like trees are giant straws. You know, there's, there's water and liquid and stuff moving through in more than just right below the bark. Um, so you have those warm conditions in the spring where it starts to wake up, but you have to stop once the buds actually open because at that point in time, the hormones and the plants shift and it starts getting what's called buddy flavor. And um, it actually changes the taste of the, the syrup and it's different sugars and different sugar content. So once um, you get, and that's usually when it's still above freezing at nighttime. If you get totally above freezing, you're, you're done. You, and you, the sap stays up in the crown. You don't get this big flow anymore. So you, you, if you're collecting sap, you know when to stop usually because it slows way down and then it starts smelling and tasting different. Okay. Interesting. Um, I thought of another question to ask, but I forgot. <laughs> there's, there's always a couple people every year that I take out to go and tap trees at the beginning. And they're like, wait, why is it coming out as water? And I'm like, because it comes out clear. <laughs> it doesn't come out looking like syrup. You have to make it into syrup first. Mm -hmm. So 
if you are there like studies I'm sure that there are um like what does taking syrup or taking sap out of maple trees affect the growth of the crown it can if it's not done properly okay so um you want to if you're going to tap trees you're taking a resource from the tree i mean there's no getting around saying that you are taking away some of the sugar it'd be like going and donating blood right mm -hmm. if you want to think of it analogous to that but you know if you aren't taking gallons of blood out of you <laughs> if you're doing it correctly you know just um a glass of orange juice and a cookie you're probably back on your feet and fine within just a couple of minutes and for trees um you can um, tap the trees and you're not taking so much of a proportion of their sap that it's going to be harming their growth um, or their crowns afterwards. And so usually the trees that you're tapping also are more of the open grown type trees. You can tie up forest trees, but a lot of places where they manage for a sugar bush, the, the trees are more wider spaced apart so that they have bigger crowns and more leaves, which make more sugar, but the trees themselves each have more resources. So if you're tapping trees, the kind of the guidelines are to go by the size of the tree. You generally don't want to tap anything that's lower or less than 10 inches in diameter, right around um, four feet. So if it's at least 10 inches, you can put a single tap in there. And then if it's more than like 16 to 20 inches, you can put two taps in there. Some people will put three taps if it's bigger than like 30 inches. I've seen people tap trees. If you look on social media and stuff, they just like put six or seven or eight of them all over a tree. And it's like, that's okay, way too much. We can find another tree to do it. Um, but like some of the companies and rules say, you know, no more than two taps per tree and it should be fine. Okay. If the tree's obviously stressed from something else, maybe half of it's already dead and you start tapping it, you might make it die faster, but just tapping normally, it's still, the tree's still gonna be putting on growth rings. Mm -hmm. So when uh, like maple trees get to a certain age then do you typically I guess like would would people usually um let's say that they had a even age stand and eventually that maple stand was like no longer producing would they typically like clear cut that stand and replant or is there like some kind of method for that so for maple Maple is usually not totally even age because mm -hmm. the way that we do single tree selection and, and take out individual trees and um, promote other trees to um, have more space and stuff like that. So maple is a little bit different and um, there's not too many areas in Michigan or Wisconsin, although they are going up in number, how many people are making maple syrup and like managing their forests for specifically for that. Um, but if you go out east or you go to like Quebec, it's, you drive around and you like, ev you can drive through miles and miles and miles and all you see is tubing in the trees. And um, in places like that where they're growing um, sugar maples, they're really intensively managing each individual tree to have the biggest crown it can have. And 
because of the way that sugar maple comes back so easily in those stands, they're not having to replant or anything. And then a maple tree on its own can live for hundreds of years. And so probably in most of those places, they're not at a point where the trees are slowing down um, or hitting the end of sort of their natural lifespan. Um, but most of the time they might be, if they're going to do any kind of planting, it's probably because they have like um, a new seed source that's supposed to be like these super sugar trees or something. And they're trying to do that. Most people are just um, letting natural regeneration sort of come up in between those single trees that they're taking out. Okay. So definitely about forest management and more like single tree selection, but I mean, yeah, maple grow for like hundreds of years. So cool. There was somebody from um, Vermont that looked at, it is possible if you have like um, basically plantation rows of, of maple trees. So they took like saplings that are only like one or two inches and they cut them off at about like three feet um, when the sapling was like one inch in diameter. And they just put tubing right on the edge of that and they could collect sap that whole spring. I mean, it kills the tree, but if you're willing to wait just a few years, you could do that like almost farm style. I don't know if anybody would, but they showed that it was possible. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it would definitely just be more of an expense than anything to do that. Yeah. Are there people that plant maples in rows like that? Like, has that been a thing at all? Like I said, if they had some kind of, there's somebody I think even at MSU that worked on for a while, um, the genetics of sugar maple, which is really tricky getting to the genetic stuff of it. Having a, car, a conversation with James would be really interesting. Um, but the, uh, there are genes related to like the sugar content and they were trying to develop like a line of super sweet trees where the average um, sugar maple has um, I don't know if you can hear me, but you completely cut out and are frozen.
I don't know what happened. <laughs> That's okay. I can just cut that part out, so. No worries. I don't remember what we were talking about now. <laughs> uh, I was, I was started to say that, um, like the average maple tree might have two to 4% sugar content, mm. but like there are super sweet trees that might have six to 8% sugar content. And that even though that doesn't sound like a big difference, if you're collecting thousands of gallons of sap or taking hundreds and hundreds of hours and boiling it down, that cuts you and saves you time. Yeah, definitely. Um, is there anything else like specifically about maple syrup and like that kind of stuff that you are interested in talking about or that you had thought about talking about on the show? Well, I think it is um, important to note that this year is going to be sort of a weird year for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, definitely the class was impacted with the stay-at-home orders and I couldn't collect SAP this year or make it as a community activity with the class through the college. Um, it's just not something that one person, myself, could do by myself or all alone. Plus, it required travel, which trying to limit the amount that we travel. Um, but all the students who were in the class before the stay-at-home orders went in effect, I did save syrup from the previous year, and so they all got a couple of pints or jars to take home. Um, so at least there's that, and I did offer them that, of course, if they're around this coming fall that they can collect it from me if they didn't have the chance to. Um, but that's just my class. The thing that I'm excited about, people like Jerry or other people who got to stay home more, maybe they had more opportunity to keep boiling and making syrup. So the when the numbers come out for like the statistics for the year, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, definitely. Definitely hard with yeah, like you said, just it's you can't really do that stuff alone um, at a bigger level. So, cool. Well, um, I don't know. I usually when I'm talking to everyone on my podcast, we kind of touch on like an experience like a, a favorite experience or like a favorite memory so do you want to share like a a favorite experience that you've had a favorite experience i've had i well one i really like um taking my kids with me when we're going down and my dogs when we're going down and making syrup it feels like um it's kind of funny to see like my seven-year-old tell college students, this is how you make it, this is how you cap it, and um, that kind of thing. But I like just the idea of, of teaching this is super fun every year because the class itself is kind of, I try to make it something for everyone. And there are students who take it because they have made it every year with their grandfather and they wanna find out more about the history part of it. Or there are students who take it just because it looked like something fun. They have no idea any single thing is at all. They're the fun students to have in class, I think. Well, they all are, but even more so because, like I said before, it's um, to see that kind of like surprise on their face when they tap a tree and it comes, it's like as soon as they take the drill out, there's already like liquid coming out. They're like, what? 
wow, it worked kind of surprise session or like when we draw it off of the evaporator and it comes out and that you can smell it, your eyebrows are all steamy and sticky and everything from, it smells like the best, like sugary cotton candy, maple smell. Um, and then we can pour that on the snow and make it into like the um, maple syrup wax or jack wax, some people call it. And it's like taffy consistency. That's always fun to share with students and just, I mean, who's not, happy and excited and having a good time when they're like making something that you can eat in class like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I have never been able to do that yet, so I would definitely be interested in taking that class in the future for sure, um, just for fun, just to learn a new thing and learn more about um, the culture and everything about it, so. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, and then I also usually just talk about like what, I don't know, like what kind of advice do you have for people? I mean, we can talk about not just maple syrup wise, but like what kind of advice do you have for people looking at getting into the natural resource field or looking at going into like a master of forestry program? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that um, was a, the biggest lesson for me, I think, kind of going through college and going through trying to figure out what my career is or was. And um, like a lot of adults still saying, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up, but um, just to get over that like hesitancy and feeling of, well, I can't ask about that or that's a dumb question. There's there's no question that's a dumb question, and um, you have to ask questions to figure out what your next steps are. And that took me, I'm definitely a different person than I was when I was a 17, 18-year-old looking at colleges, or when I was in my 20s looking at graduate school, and, and you know, you, um, that was the biggest thing was just getting over that hurdle of putting yourself out there, asking questions of people and figuring out things. Um, if you don't take that sort of initiative um, yourself, it's going to be hard to just kind of sit back and wait for things to come to you. So that's, that was my biggest thing kind of growing up and, and looking at colleges and um, trying to decide what careers is don't be afraid to ask questions. That's good advice. Definitely. Well, cool. Is there anything else that you would like to share in the podcast? I know you wrote a lot in your little like bio, um, so I tried to touch on as much as many things as I as I can. Um, I wanted to give you the option if there was something you really wanted to talk about. It's your podcast. Me? Um, I don't know. I I kind of talked about myself a lot in well in some of the episodes. I just throw stuff in. Uh, I, I don't know. I I don't have, uh, like I said, any really background before today on maple syrup stuff. Um, and my interests are definitely pretty different than yours. Like I'm not really the like sciencey person, um, you know, and I, I, I don't know, I care about forest health, but more from like a management like perspective, um, I guess. And 
yeah, I like learning about all of it for sure. Um, it's definitely, I think it'll make me like a better forester in the end, learning about like all this research that's been done by other people and everything. So, yeah. So the, um, I might not say that I'm that sciencey of a person either though, right? It's, it's what our definitions of that are. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the um, cool, just because I geek out over a cool bug that I find out in the woods doesn't mean that I don't like the forest management applied prescription silviculture part of it either, right? So, but we're going to talk a lot about that when you're in forest health. Yes, I'm excited. Um, I guess another thing that I just we already kind of talked about it but just like something that I'm super passionate is about is making sure that um, we just like recognize the colonization and like the the racism and everything that happens and it's like weird because a lot of people I feel like typically wouldn't think about like natural resources and forestry as being uh, I don't know, they just, like, it's it's easy to forget that stuff, but it's super important to remember that Indigenous people were here first, and they managed the lands long, long before we did, and I think that there's a lot to learn from Indigenous people about how to manage, uh, manage forests and manage land, mm -hmm. um, and it's super important to acknowledge that, like, they, they created this for us, like, we took land from them we took we took everything from them um mm -hmm. and yeah it's easy to forget that sometimes but when I'm out in the woods walking like I just think about the history of of everything before and like what what the upper peninsula would have looked like before colonization happened up here um yeah. so it's definitely important to like research that history and give acknowledgement to the people who deserve it I totally agree. And um, I think that's becoming more and more prominent in our conversations and, um, you know, in this sort of time and education, it's, it's becoming more front and center that that is something that not just could be included, but should be included and is. Um, like going through my undergraduate degrees, I don't know that any acknowledgement like that ever happened um or in you think being in like you said in forestry and natural resources it's so immediately relevant the impact that people had on the lands that we're looking at now and people when you talk about like restoration and stuff it's it's restoration to what point in time it's it's not just restoration to something 20 years ago it, you know there's a lot more of important information out there and so I'm glad that it's a part of the conversation and I hope that in the courses I teach that I am able to incorporate that in some way, in a meaningful way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, I think we touched on a lot of stuff and I'm like, I, like I said, I, I learned a lot from about maple syrup stuff. Like I, I really haven't seen it and been exposed to it much. Um, even even though I have lived up in the UP for like six or seven years now. So 
I really so appreciate invited you. you. I would have invited you this spring had I actually been making it. Yes. Yeah. I got invited out to uh, Jerry's to help out. And, um, you know, I mean, it's just been crazy. So he was using our snowmobile. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Um, I definitely would like if you have any like pictures that you would want to share because I created an Instagram for caught in the crossfire and it's called it's just at caught in the crossfire no spaces no other um, punctuation or anything in it and I'm going to try to post a picture um, that correlates with every podcast so if okay. you have any pictures of um, you know people out collecting and like what it looks like when the evaporation process is going on and everything I would love to post those on my Instagram perfect I'll send you some later this afternoon sweet okay well awesome thank you so much Tara I'm glad that we finally got to do this and yeah I really I really would be interested in taking the course in the future probably after I complete my master's <laughs> um, yeah but yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing and for teaching me, and hopefully a lot of other people learn from listening to this episode. Cool. Thanks for having me. Talk to you another time. Okay. Have a good one. You too. Bye.